It's Friday, May 14th, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. While that's um, uniquely my title, I'm not the only Hoover Fellow who does podcasting. Now, normally I'd give you a long litany of Hoover Fellows in the podcast business. Let's cut to the chase today, though. It'll be a little quicker. Go to the Hoover website, hoover.org, and then click on where it says publications. Go to where it says podcast. Check out what we have to offer. We have podcasts on economics, foreign policy, law, uh, military affairs, classics—you name it. We uh, we cover the uh, we cover the waterfront, if you will, and we give you the choice of subscribing to any of all of them if you want to. We also give you the option of signing up for what we call our monthly Pod Blast, which delivers the best of Hoover podcast. And some months, even I make the cut. Usually, when I have on the guest I have today, Hoover Podcast, just one part of Ideas Defining a Free Society. My guest today, joining me from Southern California, is my colleague Leo Hanian. Lisa Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and a Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at UCLA. He's also the Associate Director at the Center for the Advanced Study in Economic Efficiency at Arizona State University and a Research Associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Leo Hanian is also my partner in crime when it comes to matters of the Golden State. He and I write columns most week for Hoover Institution's California On Your Mind web channel. Uh, Lee writes policy, I write politics. Lee, great to have you back on the podcast. Hey, Bill. Bill, it's a lot of fun. A lot, lot to talk about today here in the Golden State. We do. We last talked about six weeks ago, and a lot has happened since then, beginning with you, Leo Hanian, becoming something of a new sensation. <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm referring to is a headline in uh, the UK newspaper, The Independent, that reads as follows, and I quote, Caitlyn Jenner mocked for rambling interview insisting a guy called Lee and other budget people helped her understand California's $3 trillion economy. So, Lee, I know who Caitlyn Jenner is. She is the former decathlete, former former uh, Kardashian patriarch who famously transitioned, and she's now a candidate uh, in the uh, presumed recall election in California running for governor. But, Lee, who is this guy called Lee? Well, Bill, my, uh, my, my, my 14-year-old son is, uh, is taking that uh, headline from a UK, a UK uh, newspaper um, and saying, hey, my, my, my dad is this guy called Lee. <laughs> uh, so what that refers to is an interview that Caitlin did with CNN um, know, about two or three days ago um, in, in which she was asked by the CNN interviewer, do, do you think you have the knowledge of the world's fifth largest economy to be able to guide it in these difficult times. And Caitlin responded, well, you know, I've been, I've been um, surrounding myself with people who, who know a lot about the California economy. And then, and then I fell into that category, whether, whether uh, that description is, is apt or not for me, it's an incredibly complex situation. Um, but it, during that interview, she said, yeah, I've been talking to this guy, this guy, this guy named Lee at the Hoover Institution. And immediately after that, um, after that CNN interview, um, my email started lighting up with reported questions saying, are you by any chance the person named Lee? That Caitlyn Jenner referred to. So, yes, uh, this 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 might be my Andy Warhol fifteen minutes of of fame um, without my without my last name being being listed. Right, and what happened was the the Jenner campaign had reached out to you and asked uh, to have a conversation with you about economics. Correct. That's right. That's right. Uh, the Jenner campaign and the Falcon campaign both had contacted me um, about two or three weeks ago. And, and, and Bill, of course, uh, you know, that came through the work we've done on California on, California on your mind with a, a little bit of a shameless plug. Bill writes on Thursdays about California politics and policy. I write on Tuesdays about California economy. 
in economic policies. And um, both Jenner and Faulkner, of course, are throwing their hats in the ring for the recall race. And um, in the time I've uh, I've spent chatting with them, um, I think you know both are extremely concerned about how life. Um, for those who don't have the luxury of being able to deal with all of the inefficiencies and expenses in California, for the people who are struggling, um, both Jenner and Faulkner, I think their hearts are in the right place. They have really good economic instincts. Um, I spoke to Jenner about housing policies and in particular, what type of policy reforms could be implemented in order to increase the amount of residential construction that we have in the state and also to bring down construction costs, which have risen to absurd levels. Uh, and with Faulkner, we spoke about tax policy and I was actually with him at his campaign rollout of this tax reform uh, initiative. So yeah, it's been interesting uh, two weeks getting to know uh, getting to know both candidates. Yeah, and uh, for, for those listening who are not fully into California politics, so uh, you know you may know who Caitlyn Jenner is. Uh, Faulkner is former San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner. Um, he's a Republican, and there are two other Republicans uh, who have indicated they'll be recall candidates. One is uh, John Cox, the uh, Rancho Santa Fe businessman who ran against Gavin Newsom, the <clears throat> California governor. In 2018, um, he got in the news for uh, coming out and campaigning alongside a bear. I kid you not, a live 1,000-pound bear. This is what it takes to get noticed in California, folks. And then the other Republican is uh, former Congressman Doug Osi. And Lee, I'm not sure what it says about politics in our life and times, but <clears throat> Caitlyn Jenner has received the lion's share of attention so far of candidates challenging Newsom. Uh, a poll came out this week from the Public Policy Institute of California. She was at 6% of the poll. So it's it's kind of in, inverse. She gets 6% of the uh, of the poll numbers, but she gets 94% of the coverage, it seems. That's right. That's right. I, I believe she has uh, substantially more name recognition than as Governor Gavin Newsom within California, which um, which speaks volumes perhaps about our electorate and may provide a lot of evidence about why California policy seemed to continue down, in my opinion, um, the wrong road. Um, but, you know, Bill, it's, it's, it's fascinating what's happened the last six months. Gavin Newsom was riding high with approval ratings in the mid-60s last fall. And then by February, those approval ratings were down to 46%. At that point, the Republican National Committee started funneling cash into the recall Gavin movement. Over 2 million signatures were collected. I believe, what was it, about 1.7 million signatures uh -huh. were validated, well above the, the required the required number, which was just under 1.5 million. So there's a sizable chunk of Californians who are rightly concerned about the direction of the state and many of the state's shortcomings, which were you know, swept under the rug or, or wallpapered over before COVID really came to the fore during COVID. Um, and I think people began to see just how important some of the policy-related deficiencies are, ranging from housing to K-12 education to how the budget is allocated. And you know, frankly, I'm really concerned because this you know, remains very strong democratic state and both 
Jenner and Falconer are Republicans, as are Cox and Osi. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, there'd probably be a whole a whole basket full of other types of candidates who might jump into this. Um, but California, just for decades now, has been pursuing policies that just make it nearly impossible for people who aren't incredibly high earners to, to live decently. Um, I was at the Faulkner campaign when he rolled out his tax cut proposal uh, earlier this week. And what I mentioned is that over one in three Californians are living in poverty or near poverty, um, about 36%. And just think about that statistic for a moment. Um, That's really shameful um, that in the year 2021, we have 36% of people living in or near poverty. And this is not really a result of COVID, which has exacerbated that. We had that statistic before, before COVID ever, ever came here. And for those people, um, you know, where's the hope? Where is their ability to make sure that they can remain in the apartment they're living in or make a, or make a car payment or pay for a car repair if they have to? Who is delivering for them? Right now, really, no one's delivering for them. Gavin Newsom would claim he's that guy, Lee. And um, it's timely uh, conversation must be getting into this. Uh, today is May the 14th. Uh, it is a Friday uh, in Sacramento. Uh, it is May Revised Day. <clears throat> and for those not familiar with the ways of California budgeting, um, the governor puts out a budget proposal in January. The California fiscal year runs from uh, July to July. So they need a budget in place by July 1st. So the governor puts out his blueprint in uh, January. Legislature looks at it. They kind of kick it around, think it over and mull it over. But they all wait until May, Lee, because what happens in April, tax revenue comes in May. You revise the budget then you know how much money you have to deal with. <clears throat> and you either have good news or bad news on May revised days. Either there's less revenue than you anticipated, in which case you're going to have to go tighten your belt, or there is more revenue, in which case, haha, we have money to spend. And boy, does Gavin Newsom have money to spend. Uh, people want to call him Santa Claus for the amount of money which he's about to sprinkle out. Lee, this is more like Hanukkah. This is day after day after day of celebration if you're Gavin Newsom. But Here's what we're talking about in terms of money. Uh, California right now, and, and they may revise itself, Lee's going to be presented. Uh, we're doing this on Friday morning. He's going to be talking live about this in about an hour. Uh, as best we know, the budget surplus comes in around $75 billion. Let me repeat that for folks, $75 billion. That's more than most states' budgets, but this is just surplus money California has right now, simply because COVID was not that devastating to the economy. Um, of that money, Lee, about $26.6 billion will go to K-12 schools and community colleges. This is Proposition 98. It's 40% of surplus money is mandated for education. $11 billion will go into a rainy day fund or pay down debt. This is the uh, legacy of Proposition 2, which Jerry Brown passed. Then, Lee, the governor has $38 billion. Let me repeat, $38 billion to play with. Monopoly money, plain and simple. So what's he going to do? He wants to hand it. By the way, this is not uh, counting the $26 billion in federal stimulus money that's coming to California. So it really is about a $100 billion pot of money here. So what the governor is promising is a $600 rebate to people making less than $75,000 a year, $600. Questionly, is this really a rebate? Well, Bill, it's um, it's not so much a rebate for some folks. A rebate means that people are paying taxes and right. they're getting some of those tax dollars back. California has an incredibly progressive tax schedule, progressive meaning that the marginal tax rate 
for high earners is, is much, much higher than that, than that for low earners. So uh, in, in California, the top 1% pay you know, roughly 50, 52% of state income taxes. So there are a lot of folks who are earning incomes, um, you know, who aren't paying state income taxes. So it's not a rebate per se. It is, uh, it's the check they're going to stick in the bank and, and do whatever they're going to do with it. But uh, yeah, rebate really is a misnomer. Um, and, and Bill, when you noted that 75 billion, um, the state budget uh, last fiscal year was what, about 210 billion? Yep. So this this surplus is one third the size of the entire state budget. And of course, they have analysts who, whose job it is to try to forecast revenues in, in order for the state to make rational spending plans. And you might think about well, you know, how could they be off so much? Well, this is really a relic of the way California taxes the incomes of individuals. As I mentioned a minute ago, you know, over half is coming from those in the top 1%. A lot of that is coming from capital gains. That is incredibly difficult to forecast, but decade after decade, California is really beholden to the very highest earners and how and the choices that they make in terms of exercising stock options or selling or selling assets and then paying capital gains uh, on those sales. And when I say capital gains, there's no special capital gains tax treatment in the state of California that, that those gains are being taxed as ordinary income. So a big chunk of that's coming from those folks. And then as you noted, there's stimulus money coming from the federal government. So Gavin has a ton of cash. He is the banker as we sit at the monopoly table. And he is stacking the community chess deck as we go around, as we go around the board. And he's going to be doling out dollar after dollar to us. It reminds me um, a little bit of Nixon's reelection campaign back in 1972 when he sent out letters to senior citizens, making sure they understood that he was giving them a cost of living increase in Social Security. And Bill, I know I think I think those letters arrived about six weeks, about six weeks before the November 72 election. Um, so we have this recall going on and Gavin is the guy uh, with the checkbook. So he has an, he has a huge advantage right now over his opponents. You know, some Republicans are going to find this very difficult to counter. Uh, you can argue the fiscal wisdom of it. You can argue the economic impact of it, but it makes for very nice headlines. Uh, but there is one recourse that uh, conservatives could have here, Lee, and that is to invoke uh, the legacy of uh, Proposition 4 passed in 1979. It was a follow-up to Prop 13 and the so-called GAN limit. You know what the GAN limit does in California, it's a formula, and it limits spending based on inflation and population growth. If the limit is reached, then surplus money has to be returned uh, by, quote, a revision of rates or fee schedules. This has happened once before in California, 1987. Uh, every taxpayer got a rebate, uh, about $32 per individual lead when you take the vast ocean of people who pay taxes in California and then, you know, then divide the money available. It doesn't add up to much, but the idea is everybody shares in the recovery, not just a not just a certain few at a certain income. Um, so here's the question right now. We're supposedly $16 billion over the GAN limit. That's what the governor's um, uh, uh, counters uh, figure. What you could do if you're the GOP is you could go to court. You could sue the governor of the state of California and say he's not really doing the GAN limit. Uh, and this is not really the spirit of the law. In other words, not everybody is getting money back. 
HS people in certain demographics. That's right. That's right. Um, what Gavin really hasn't announced to to Californians is that he <laughs> he is required by law to right. send these dollars back. Uh, it's it's not at his discretion. Um, and if you go by the letter of law within the GAN limit, it's not that the governor chooses who's going to receive tax money and, and by how much. So there's, there could be a Republican challenge to this. Um, as uh, it seems to me to be politically risky because the risk there is that Gavin and the Democratic Party says, hey, look at the Republicans. They are the party of no. They're the ones holding up your checks. Mm -hmm. They want to litigate this and they want to take money away from you. Uh, and and that is, uh, that's something that people can understand. They're supposed to get a check. The Republicans are going to court to block that. They're not going to, you know, people aren't going to read the fine, the fine print or the footnotes. Um, and if you're not in that top 1%, you very well might say, well, you know what? I don't care about a law that came out in 1979 or 1980. I want my $600. And I'm really upset with the Republicans because they're the reason why, I'm, why that's not arriving in my mailbox. That's a very good point. Uh, but what this could do, Lee, is this could spark a larger conversation in California about taxation. This is stuff that we at the Hoover Institution have been gnashing our teeth over for years. You and I um, have a couple of colleagues, John Kogan and Mike Boskin, who were on um, a uh, tax reform, the Parsky Commission, which Arnold Schwarzenegger came up with late in his governorship. The idea is we're going to look at California's tax system and bring it into the 21st century. And I think that was the formal title with the Commission on the 21st Century Economy. Um, they came up with the plan. The plan was given to the legislature, promptly got thrown in the, in the trash can. They had no interest in it. Uh, but the point is, we have not had serious tax reform in a long time in California. I think the last earnest tax cut might be, Lee, uh, when I worked for Pete Wilson when he was governor back in uh, 1997, 1998. I think that's probably it for a serious recovery. So there is a question to be put forward here. When you go from this crazy swing, it was not long ago, we were talking about California looking at a $54 billion uh, deficit. Now we're looking at a $75 billion surplus. That's that's not a matter of just forgetting to carry the one. I mean, that is a <laughs> serious, that's a serious swing. But you would think with the public, it might raise the question of you know taxation in California. And along comes Kevin Falker, who you mentioned, uh, the former mayor of San Diego. He has a tax plan. What Falker would do is it reduce the marginal rate to 0% on the first $50,000 earned by individuals and the first $100,000 earned by most families. It would eliminate taxes on military retirement income. Known in California is just one of three states that fully tax that money. So the question, Lee, is when you look at taxation in California, you're advising a governor on where to go in terms of tax reform. Where do you start? Yeah, so Faulkner's plan has a lot of positives to it. And you raise really one of the most fundamental points about California in that we haven't had any serious discussion about tax reform in a long time. It's been you know, 25, 26 years since anything fundamental was passed. And California has one of the most inefficient tax systems among the states in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is, costing, this is costing California an enormous amount of economic activity, including people who are outside the top 1% and way outside the top 1%. So the, the latest research that we're finding in economics is we're able to access incredibly large data sets with fast computers. What we're finding is that the economic activity that's created by people who innovate, develop new technologies, 
the people who give birth to companies that become transformational, such as uh, California companies, such as Google, for example, um, those individuals and those companies are incredibly responsive to the tax climate. And we've just seen a few months ago, Elon Musk picking up and leaving and going to Texas along with Larry Ellison and Oracle and along with Hewlett Packard. So this is just more evidence that California has to be competitive with other states. We fundamentally need tax reform as opposed to a one-time check of $600 to people who are making $75,000 or less those who are in that category will be much better off if we have competitive tax systems and, you know, speaking more broadly, competitive regulatory environment, because in that case, we'll have job creators, we'll have new entrepreneurs, we'll have innovation and job opportunities for those people who are making 75000 or below will expand substantially compared to, you know, the idea of, hey, we lost Elon Musk. We don't want to lose any more the Elon Musks. This is incredibly costly to us. He's going to take his ability and his genius and his willingness to take risk and create jobs in Texas. He could have done that here. Uh, and we're losing him because of tax reasons and because of regulatory reasons. So that's something that we just have to change. And that is not happening with current California leadership. And how do you address, Lee, the volatility, but also the top heaviness of the California tax system? I think the top one-fifth of taxpayers account for something like 90% of revenue right now. Yeah, yeah. And that, um, and, and you know, California is painting itself into a corner with that uh-huh. because politically it becomes difficult to raise taxes on all those folks who are earning very much and who are struggling economically already. Um, but a small tax base suffers from the problem of its volatility and the fact that people can pick up and leave. There um, is some really striking research that was done by Josh Rao, <clears throat> who is a professor at the Stanford B School and also is a Hoover fellow. Right. And what Josh was able to show is that, um, is that looking at data <clears throat> after 2012, when California passed Proposition 30, which levied what was supposedly a temporary surtax on top income, uh, on top incomes of 13.3%, later, which has now become that temporary tax, CalSupreze became a permanent tax. But Josh took a look at the revenue that came in after Prop 20 was imposed, that 13.3%. Well, the Legislative Analyst's Office predicted just an enormous windfall coming from this tax. Josh was able to show that the the additional taxes that came from this were half as much as what the Legislative Analyst's Office predicted. So there was this tax increase that was pitched to save schools and to save local governments, and it brought in half as much as was advertised because people left the state, those top earners left the state. And with them, and what's very difficult to measure is that jobs that they had already created and jobs that they could create in the future are gone. So what happens is that economic activity is very fluid within the United States. Uh We can't just simply keep raising taxes and expect people to say, okay, yeah, no problem, I'll just go ahead and write a bigger check. 
we're shooting ourselves in the foot at this point. And there's a chance, you know, the legislators, some of the legislators talked about raising that top rate to 16.3%. So the, this, if we're going to save, if we're going to be able to make California more livable for a large group of people, we have to address this. And to get back to your original question, an important point of this is, you know, addressing the revenue, addressing the expenditure side. Um, we spend today five times as much per person inflation adjusted as we did back in the days of the 60s when we actually built roads and bridges and we built schools and, and state universities and we built water infrastructure the way we did all that capital spending because at that time the state had a very efficient government that worked really cooperatively and synergistically with the private sector Today, we have an incredibly inefficient government that locks heads with the private sector, that doesn't work cooperatively with the private sector. So there's just enormous amounts of dollars that are being, you know, that, that are being lit up and burned up in flames uh, at the state level. So I would love to see, I would love to see legislators, uh, those in the recall election, I'd love to see them begin addressing that and ask existing politicians, you know, why does it cost so much? Why does it cost $1,000 a square foot to build affordable housing? Mm -hmm. Why is it that only 80% of Hispanic, why, why is it that only 20% of Hispanic kids and black kids, why is it that only 20% are proficient at state level education standards, which is not a particularly high bar? Why aren't we getting more out of the dollars that you're spending? So I think that is part of the same conversation that goes with tax reform. Right. Uh, I heard the word inflationary uh, in the middle of that, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Lee, because um, inflation is something that I'm watching very much right now. Uh, government report that came out this week, uh, consumer prices rose 4.2% in April from a year earlier. Uh, consumer price index, Lee, suffered its biggest year-to-year -year jump in 13 years. Let's talk a bit about how inflation plays out in California, a state which is notoriously cruel if you are lower class or if you're middle class in terms of being squeezed. You've written about this uh, for California on your mind. I think the phrase you used was affordable sinkhole. <laughs> yes, yes. And the sinkhole has just gotten wider and, and, deep, and deeper uh, and, and more difficult, more difficult to fill. So during the last year, the median, the median price California single family home is now, I believe, seven hundred fifteen thousand uh, dollars. That's affordable for only twenty nine percent of California households, and that affordability statistic does not take into account whether those families have one hundred fifty thousand dollars in readily available liquid assets to be able to qualify for a conventional mortgage. So California housing is now more unaffordable than ever. The cost of living in California is 50% higher than the national average. And um, comparing median income households across the state and then adjusting those incomes for the median household by the state level CPI, guess what? The median California income household is actually poorer than the median income household in Mississippi, which is often referred to as the poorest state in the country. Th these are statistics that people just aren't, aren't aware of, but I think once you start thinking about those numbers, 36% of Californians enter near poverty, the median income household is the poorest in the country, um, 
people just have to think about that and understand, hey, this is policy related. We can do much, much better. And there's a lot of low hanging fruit around this been hanging there for a long time and becoming even bigger and even more lower hanging. And these things just have to be addressed. You know, Lee, one of the big uh, stories this week was back on the East Coast and the uh, lack of availability of gasoline. Uh, I know this personally, my sister who's retired um, drove from South Carolina, North Carolina, and just to fill up your car with gas in a state like North Carolina involves just a lot of planning and strategy, like getting up at dawn before other people get up and get in line. Because if you don't get up early and come back later in the day, the the line could be a quarter of a mile, half mile long. Um, But gasoline in California, when I have people come to visit, I don't know if you found the same experience, people get off the plane from California, they get in your car, you start driving around. Of course, the first thing you reflect on is, boy, the weather is great. Wow, I don't see any clouds in the sky. And then they see a gasoline station, Lee, and they say, wait a second, there's a four <laughs> in the front of that number. Well, should that be a three or a two? No, it's really 429 a gallon or 459 a gallon. I'm actually a mile away, Lee, from the Shell station that a couple of years ago famously changed its prices to saying arm and a leg. Um, when, when we start talking about gasoline, though, becoming a problem, California is that kind of glaze over when, when you get over $5, I find Californians really start to notice about this. But when we talk about inflation, Lee, in terms of affecting Californians, what, what is the real impact? I'm guessing maybe what food and food and services and clothing and just, you know, what, what, how very little your discretionary budget goes. Exactly right. Exactly right. Prices are rising and consumers are feeling the hit of that. Um, We have a number of folks on fixed incomes, so they're getting hit particularly hard. Um, You know, one reason California gas prices are so high is because we have incredibly high gasoline taxes. Those taxes are supposed to go to support the transportation infrastructure we have. And in principle, economically, in theory, it's a great idea. You drive a lot you pay a lot to have the roads maintained and fixed. Well, you know, the Society of Civil Engineers in the country gives California grade of D for our, for, for our roads. And motorists are upset because they say, look how much I'm paying. I'm paying $4.50 a gallon for gasoline, but I just almost broke an axle on my truck because of a pothole that has been sitting there in the street for four years and hasn't been fixed. Um, so yeah, Living is becoming more expensive for California, and for those outside of rent control living uh, situations, and for those without fixed rate mortgages, housing costs are going to be going up. And we've been living in an environment with incredibly low mortgage rates, but with inflation up now two months in a row, very possibly mortgage rates could be rising. Um, you know, f- and for those who aren't who are on arms, um, that's going to be an additional cost that they're going to have to deal with. Uh, could you also see an impact on the economy in terms of imports and exports? Yeah, our ability to export. We need to be competitive and we need to provide value in terms of the goods that we're sending abroad. And then in terms of imports, we're fairly self-sufficient in energy now, but you know we still have oil coming in from other countries. Um, and we have stuff going on in the Middle East. You know, it's hard to say how that'll play out, but oil prices could go up on speculative behavior. Um, we saw an incredible economic mini recovery in the third quarter of last year 
when COVID cases started dying down and economies began opening up, we had a 33% growth rate in the third quarter, which is, un, which is unheard of. That's simply right, unheard of. Right. never see anything like that. Um, fast forward to the May jobs report last Friday, um, which was the employment and unemployment rate for the country for April. Uh, we analysts predicted about a million new jobs net increase in employment of a million, it was 266,000. You never see a miss that's that big. Um, and why is that? Well, you know, President Biden and Congress had approved um, federal spending uh, in the trillions that increase unemployment benefits substantially, um, which will also be inflationary. Um, the Federal Reserve now appears to be surprised. I don't know why they're surprised, but they'd appear to be surprised by inflation being so high the last two months. Mm -hmm. So at the national level as well at the California level, this is just really, really concerning. And um, I worry about those who are making these decisions. I, I don't think they're really seeing the potential dangers of what they're doing in terms of the policies that they're implementing. Right. So, you know, Lee, I also do a show for Hoover called Goodfellows, and you've been a guest on that show talking about California. Uh, our colleague, Neil Ferguson, was sounding the inflationary alarm a year ago, already saying this was going to happen. So not a surprise there. Uh, but inflation might be relative to the recall election in this regard, Lee, uh, and getting back to the idea of the $600 rebate coming from the governor. Uh, there might be an opening for a candidate to kind of cleverly point out, well, if you want to make it brutally personal against Newsom, point out that $600 does not buy dinner for two at the French Laundry. But, <laughs> uh, but do point out, raise the question of what does $600 get you in California? And you could have just, you could be very creative, you know, just saying, okay, you know, what is the average rent in Los Angeles County? Let's say it's maybe $2,500. Okay, you got a week of rent. Um, what about automobile insurance? What about the cost of gasoline? In other words, $600 may seem like a lot of money until actually you start spending it in California, realize it doesn't go that far. And perhaps that's an opportunity to talk then about, about the affordable sinkhole that is the state. Yes, yes. We'll see what Jenner and Faulkner and Cox and OC, we'll see what they do with that because the governor has left himself open um, along that dimension. The governor who dined at the French Laundry um, and who has um, commiserated with parents over Zoom school when his children are in person school in private schools, um, <clears throat> and who's been not completely transparent about the source of, of uh, the source and the reason for why these dollars are going to be coming back. But at the end of the day, yeah, six hundred dollars is a week of rent. Six hundred dollars is about. Um, 125 gallons of gas, um, you go down the list and it's here today and gone tomorrow and the future doesn't change. Whereas fundamental policy change will change the future. Um, so I think this is where opponents to Newsom really need to probe. And I think they really need to point out that, well, you know, before COVID, what did Governor Newsom deliver? You know, his whole campaign was really about a Marshall Plan for housing and dealing with homelessness. That was the that was the center of his campaign. Well, how did Governor Newsom do in his first year before COVID ever started? So he was inaugurated in January of nineteen. COVID really started hitting California in you know late February, really early March. 
So there is a year in which he had an opportunity to get things moving. Well, housing starts actually fell in 2019. They fell 8%. Right. The housing starts were about 110,000 in the state in 2019. That's nearly 80% below his implicit goal of building 3.5 million homes by 2025. Um, so the most important campaign promise that he came up with, really he failed on. Um, housing starts fell. <laughs> they they couldn't. He they, the the needle not only didn't move. Well, it actually moved the wrong way. So I think those who are competing against the governor, they need to be pursuing these types of lines. Housing, he didn't deliver. K through twelve education quality, he didn't deliver. Cost of living, he didn't deliver. Housing, he he we mentioned he didn't deliver. Food, he didn't deliver on. Um, and then I think another area where they can probably point to is the fact that California was locked down during COVID more severely than other economies. Even as recently as March, California's unemployment rate was second to last, only to Hawaii, which is a one-off because so much of the economy is tied up with tourism and travel. Um, so we had the second, we had really the worst economy out of those economies that aren't completely dependent on travel and tourism. Um, and how did California do in terms of COVID stats? About middle of the pack. So California was locked down much more severely, didn't really benefit of it, didn't really benefit us. That's another thing that I think those opponents of Newsom have to have to point to. And probably also need to point to the fact that at some point, you know, Gavin was really a, a, a one man band who was making decisions really outside the scope of the legislature. And his Democratic colleagues were becoming, you know, irritated, annoyed and worried about the fact that he was making these decisions without a lot of consultation and advice. What is the French saying? La tat c'est moi. Um, you know, this I'm showing by the way why I do the politics or I do politics, Lee does policy, as I'm always thinking kind of nefarious political terms. One of which comes to mind, Lee, is this. I'm running against Newsom, and I look at that $38 billion pile of money, and I might ask the question, why don't we give parents a couple thousand dollars, a voucher for $2,000 if they want, so their child can go to any school they want to, i.e. a school that will actually be open this fall, just as the governor's school has been, because I think one drama that maybe headed California's way, I don't know if you saw this, Lee, but Randy Weingartner, who was a, a national union leader for, uh, for teachers, uh, she was on TV yesterday saying in no uncertain terms that schools should be reopened in the fall. Teachers should be back in the classroom. Things should be the way they are. But what she's not reflecting is what local unions think. Lee, for example, the United Teachers Los Angeles, one of the most militant groups in America, arguably. And there was a question going in. If you notice, Newsom's very careful about this. He always says, I hope schools will be reopened. He doesn't say they will be. He's saying, I hoped. This is a ticking time bomb for him, a landmine, if you will. If come September uh, there is quote unquote reopening leave, but it's really just some bad form of it where your child is not in the classroom, your child is lost in the lottery, and he or she has to still learn from home. And parents could be mad. So I'm, I'm wondering if a recall candidate should maybe come in it that way as well, because kind of raise the question of public schools and maybe alternatives to education. Our colleague Paul Peterson has written about how there's a national opening for school choice in America, he thinks, based on unions and the pandemic. And I'm just kind of wondering if maybe in California, um, recall candidates can revisit that topic. Yeah, absolutely. They should be, they should be probing at that because there's a cozy 
quid pro quo that's going on between California teachers unions and the Democratic Party more broadly. There's a back scratching element to that relationship. <clears throat> and an important component of leadership is to be able to provide public services in a cohesive and forward-looking manner. And California, I believe, is last in terms of getting classrooms open. And you know, yesterday I was reading that San Francisco will open high schools for one day. Maybe. For one, for, for one day. You know, what I read was they're going to open high schools for one day in June in order to qualify for $12 million. That's a reopened in, school in California. Yeah. In additional funding. Um, and when, you know, I think parents on the one hand want to think that, hey, my kid has these great teachers and they tend to mistake <clears throat> the teachers in the classroom for the union folks who are making decisions. Right. Who I think right now don't really have the kids' well-being in mind. Um, they're very self-interested. They're highly paid. They're, uh, they're working for the benefit of um, a small group which does not include parents and which does not include the kids. Uh, and Newsom is unwilling to push them. He, is, uh, he has offered money, he's offered more money, he's offered even more money. <clears throat> and UTLA, as you noted, one of the most militant groups mm -hmm. in teachers unions and California Teachers Association have given a laundry list of things they want before they reopen, including most of which are so far outside the bounds of education, including programs to deal with systemic racism and uh, housing policies and healthcare policies and you know you name it and that's on the that's on the teachers unions wish list um and newsom is vulnerable on this point because he has not pushed them he's not demonstrated the leadership to get kids back in the classroom. And this is what parents want. This is so important for kids learning in their emotional and social development. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this is this is right at the top of the list in terms of areas where opponents could point to Newsom as not being a governor for all Californians, but rather for a very small elite group of yeah. California. And it gets back to this fault line because what you've seen, you know, uh, you know, the pandemic has been cruel to education along economic fault lines in terms of have and have nots in California. If you're have living here in Palo Alto or Montecito, closer to where you are, uh, fine. You just go out, you create a pod, you hire a teacher, you and your you know, wealthy friends get together and you hire a teacher. I was talking to a teacher who does this and she tutors and it must be wonderful. It must be like having Mary Poppins at your house. But um, if you're struggling, no, your kid is at home and you're on Zoom and, you know, the kid is getting a bad education. We're seeing it leads to other ways. So it's just an interesting way to message the $600, 600 bucks, by the way, by the way, Lee, does not even buy you a new laptop for your kid to do Zoom for school. So there are a lot of ways you can play around with this. But I do think that, you know, this conversation about taxation, about fairness and about the fault lines needs to come forward. And that's going to be very hard in California when, A, the governor is handing out money left and right and B, you know, some of the recall candidates are, you know, resorting to stunt politics, bringing out dancing bears and things like that to get attention. So, you know, it's it's a wonk's lament, but, you know, I have this lament every four years in California. We need to have an adult conversation about this state, and I'm not sure that our leaders are necessarily, I'm not sure if the leaders are geared for the adult conversation. And even worse, I don't think the media want us to have that adult conversation. I, I agree with you, Bill. It's <clears throat> it's an unpleasant conversation, and it becomes more unpleasant as we go forward. And it's not just <clears throat> it's not just in California. It's at the national level where right. there's an unpleasant conversation to be had about uh, about Medicare 
and Social Security. And uh, no matter what party you're in, if you're a politician in Washington, you just keep kicking that can down the road. You don't touch Social Security, you don't touch Medicare. And now in the Biden administration, the current Congress is, <clears throat> hey, let's, let's just keep writing checks. Debt, public debt, hey, who cares? Who cares? This is just paper. Um, so California has to have that conversation, <clears throat> irrespective of whoever wins in this recall. Um, <clears throat> it's a real shame and it's a real detriment to Californians if that doesn't happen. And um, it's really up to it's really up to the opponents of Newsom to 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 bring this up and really to force him to confront this and to force him to take a side on this and not really gimmicks such as here's six hundred dollars to the people in California who really need it. Hey, okay, have have a week's have a week's rent on me. Well, it's also leads up to the press to have this conversation because they are the watchdogs for our politicians. And look, we, we can have a choice. We can either have a serious conversation about taxation in California and affordability, or we can have screaming headlines about a guy called Lee. So that's, that's what we're looking <laughs> Yes, yes. Um, yeah, no, the, uh, I, I, yes, I wish the press was much more attuned to really what the foundational problems are in California. Um there are some folks like Dan Walters, uh, like George Skelton, who dig deep on these issues, but we need more people who should be asking questions like, hey, funding within the average California classroom of 20 kids, there's $400,000 being spent per year on a classroom with 20 kids. Why aren't we getting more out of that? Why aren't kids passing state proficiency exams higher than 20%, which is the passing rate, the proficiency rate for African-Americans and for, and for uh, Latinos. Why are the roads so bad when we have such high gas taxes? Why aren't we building housing? Why does it cost $1,000 a square foot, which is, um, you know, builders can, can write to me if I'm wrong on this, but $1,000 a square foot should be buying you something like the Ritz-Carlton on Kanapali Beach in Hawaii. Why? 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 Does it have to be this way? It doesn't have to be this way. But we're not. But the press really needs to be asking those questions. And I think they'll be handled. I think they'll be rewarded because they are questions that people need to see. And I think people would be really excited. They might be very angry as well when they saw stories about this. I would add one more question to the mix, Lee, and that's the question, what are you building? Not, not what are you giving away, because we know you want to give away $600 checks, not what are you creating, for example, if the governor has a proposal to create another year of education, pre-K, uh, but what are you building? What, what, are we, what are we actually putting into the ground and bringing up? You harken back to the California Pat Brown, which we, we fall back on much too nostalgically, because first of all, that was a Californian of like 14, 15 million people, but Pat Brown did what? He built universities, he built roads, he built waterways. So what are we constructing in California? And please, Lee, don't say high-speed rail. <laughs> there's, another, there's another topic that opponents of the governor need to bring up, um, which has been just an unmitigated disaster and is really the poster child of irresponsible government. And really what I see is a lack of accountability within state government. Um, and it's not just cost overruns, but when you look at the history of high-speed rail, I mean, I can't tell you how many lawsuits there are about this because the state didn't get permits or the state built track on someone's property without actually 
paying them to build tracks on their property. Um, I mean, these things, these are things that just shouldn't happen. These things don't happen nearly to the same extent as in the private sector, because the private sector has to be competitive. They have to be efficient. They have to compete. In the government, state government, there's we don't have to, you know, there's no need to compete. So um, we see failures like that. We see failures like the Education Development Department, which paid out billions of dollars to those who've been convicted in murder and who are living in state prisons, uh, to someone who fraudulently claimed to be Diane Feinstein, to people who are as young as one year old or as old as 120 years old while people with legitimate unemployment claims had to wait months to get money. Um, that shouldn't happen. The failure of the Oroville Dam, which imperiled the lives of nearly 200,000 people, shouldn't have happened because warning reports were issued years before that dam failed. None of these things should be happening, and yet they continue to do so. And this is what opponents in the recall need to bring up about not just government Newsom, because these problems have been around for a long, long time. They, pre they predate Gavin. Um, but we have a severe infrastructure problem, um, transportation. We haven't had any substantial new water infrastructure since the California Water Project was prematurely terminated in the early 1970s. Mm -hmm. um, this is stuff we have to have because, you know, this is another drought year. So by the time July or August rolls around, you know, don't be surprised if you have water rationing. Um, don't be surprised if there's enormous conflict between agriculture and other uses other use, uh, uses of state water, and the governor's going to have to deal with this. Uh, one reason being because we haven't invested in water infrastructure. So the, um, the can keeps getting, Bill, the can keeps getting kicked down the road. But I love your idea about the media and being much more critical and looking much more deeply at our problems and asking why is it the case? Just don't accept it. Just why is it the case there's a better way? Exactly. So, Lee, I promised to let you go at the top of the hour. You have a class to teach, and I have to go write a check to the Franchise Tax Board and add to my already considerable grumpiness, sending a <laughs> lot of money to Sacramento, and not that I'll ever see any of it, any of it back. Uh, Lee, I enjoyed the conversation. Well, thanks so much. Always a lot of fun. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to re rate, review, and subscribe. And if you would mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Lee Ohanian is on Twitter. His Twitter handle at Lee underscore Ohanian. Ohanian spelled O-H-A-N-I-A-N. At Lee underscore Ohanian. I mentioned our website beginning of the broadcast, uh, which is www.hoover.org. While, while you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report. It delivers the best work of Lee Ohanian and his colleagues to your inbox weekdays. Also check out California On Your Mind, which Lee and I write for every week. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Till then, take care. As always, thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.